No, your face just lit up there, Ben. Yeah, well, of course it did. What a comedic little frog noise. That's incredible. It really doesn't sound very frog-like. It sounds like a bird. It's phenomenal. Pretty birdie. It would have to be... It feels like it would be a shame if it wasn't named after it. Okay, it is named after it. Now, I wonder whether it's connected to the paper that we've got coming up. I wonder if I can use my sort of existing knowledge. And uh, I wonder if this is uh, the common coqui frog. <laughs> He's done it. He's done okay. it for the first time ever. So all it took was to have the name of the frog sort of next to me. <laughs> because that's what we're going to be talking about later. Yeah, but Ben, a win's a win. You got it right. You got it right. You guessed the frog species correctly based on its cool. Okay, yes. The whole episode we're about to do is about these cocky frogs. So you had a big clue. And they literally say their name. <laughs> yeah, and they literally do say their name as well. Yeah, you can see why they're called a cocky frog, right? I mean, the cool is literally just like, cocky. It's incredible. Yeah. What an incredible sounding frog. What a polite frog to also tell you its name. Yeah, super, super cool. And so, yeah. That is the Kokui frog. And that is going to be the topic of our episode today, for the most part anyway. Um, we're going to be talking about these Kokui frogs. So the scientific name of this species is a bit of a mouthful. They call them Eulithrodactylus Kokui. Kokui. And it's described as a relatively small tree frog. They're found in Puerto Rico. And um, they only get to like between three and four centimetres long with the males smaller than the females. And what sort of color? What are we talking color wise here? We're talking highly variable, mate. Oh, we're talking highly variable. Dorsal colors vary from like brown, some of them are gray, some of them are sort of yellowy, some of them have stripe, some of them have like a little M between their shoulders. Sometimes okay. they have cream colored stripes on their sides with little black spots. Very, very variable. The belly is a little bit more consistent, it's usually white or yellow and it's stippled with brown. So, you know. Are we talking like classic tree frog look, are we? Big eyes, big feet, long limbs. Yeah, certainly got big eyes. I'd say they've got big feet. They've got very large toe pads, but they're not webbed. So they're Uh, arboreal style. Yeah, big time clamberer. The big eyes, yeah, I would say they do have big eyes and the eyes are sort of brown or gold. Um, They're quite beautiful, quite understated, I'd say. And, you know, we heard the call just now and the call is exceptionally loud. They have a reputation for being extremely loud frogs. And actually, they're an invasive species in a bunch of places. They've been introduced to Hawaii. They've been introduced to a bunch of states in America because they find themselves transported via the plant trade, right? So they'll just be like hanging around Aww. in a little shrub. Somebody sends the shrub to Hawaii to plant their garden. And next thing you know, the cockies are all over the goddamn shop. Screaming away. <laughs> yeah. And they've announcing they, they do... its arrival yeah, by calling its they... name. They do describe that as one of its impacts, although in the course of my research for this podcast, I actually stumbled across one of these like uh, meditative forest sound songs. You yes. know, the ones that like, listen to the sound of the forest, you know, yeah. because yeah. we're living in an age where... We live know, in a concrete forest. 
Yeah, and thoughts are so loud, you know, thoughts are so loud. Um, so it's good to try and listen to the sounds of the forest when you're trying to sleep sometimes. And you can get ones explicitly with the sounds of Puerto Rico and you can hear the coqui frog calling in the background in amongst the rain. It's extremely <laughs> relaxing. I thought you were going to say you could specifically get ones from Puerto Rico with all the coqui frogs noises removed because of how obnoxiously loud they are in comparison to all of the forest noises. <laughs> no, I think people... People in Puerto Rico generally approve of the coffee I hope frogs. so. It sounds like amazing. I, but I could understand if it was exceptionally loud and immediately outside your window when you're trying to sleep. It could be problematic. Yeah, yeah. I totally get that. And yeah, they're sort of like this. They're thought of as... They're not really terrestrial. They're not really fully arboreal. They're a bit of a mix. Like when they're young, they tend to be more associated with the forest floor. As they get older, they might clamber up into the trees, eating bugs... What's cool about them, they have these big fat toe pads that help them stick to surfaces so they can climb. Um, they actually are what's known as direct developers. So a small froglet hatches directly from the egg. There's no free living tadpole stage. And actually they take that to kind of a bit of a next level where although direct developing frogs, sometimes they develop within the egg, but there is kind of like almost like a tadpole phase that then turns into a frog as they grow. Mm. But in this one things like the lateral line organs so those like uh, nerve endings on the sort of face and along the side uh, never develop so they don't waste their time developing these larval features in the egg they just go more or less straight to egg frog to although, frog <laughs> yeah although yeah. they do grow a tail inside the egg before they then lose huh. it and eventually hatch so it's not perfect you know they're but still they're on their way to just being egg to frog presumably they're about if as there's a selective pressure get. against having a tail during the level state it probably is minimal minimal well, i don't think they're going to be swimming far in the egg are they no <laughs> but maybe it serves some kind of flapping function i don't know um they also call within a very uh, narrow frequency which is different from other closely related species so they use that as a means of like differentiating who's shouting in the forest because mm. they're from this very diverse community of frogs so yeah it's not surprising each species more or less has like a private frequency that they cool on and um yeah we've got a paper here about these frogs the paper we're going to talk about is Hawley Matslaga, Burroughs, Hernandez Pacheco, Pina, Sutherland and Wood 2021 and it's entitled Warming Increases Activity in the Common Tropical Frog, Eulithrodactylis, ah, it should be an E but it's a U, Eulithrodactylis coqui, Climate Change Ecology, that's published in. When I say it should be an E, just for ease of pronunciation. <laughs> um, yeah, and we, we, you know, this obviously is a paper published in Climate Change Ecology. We're talking about climate change. Um, we're talking about the impacts of climate change on frogs. Obviously, human-induced climate change is a thing. If you disagree with that, you're off your nut. And uh, <laughs> There you go. Yeah, so, Ben, obviously... The climate's warming, right? Mm -hmm. Hotter. I don't know about you. I struggle with extremes of heat. I get very sweaty. And so it's no different, really, if you're an animal. So picture this. Yeah, we, we have our thermal optimum, right? Temperature, which is just prime living. What is it for a human? Is it 21? I think it's meant to be 21 because that's what like room temperature is. Like 21 and a half is like your for experimental chemistry stuff like your assumption of room temperature but also there are no universal things when it comes to that sort of stuff is there so 
sure, 21 and a half for a lot of people. But I bet you there's equally as many people. No one's exactly the mean, right? <laughs> Mate, we used to have terrible arguments when I worked in an office about the heating. Like some of the older ladies would just insist on banging it up to like 24 and I'll be there like, that's nuts. sorry, we're operating <laughs> above my thermal max here. I really can't cope. I really can't cope. We're going to have to turn it down or I'm going to just not be able to work. No, that's, that's anyway, too much. That's too much. So Ben, picture this, right? You're okay. an animal. You yep. are an animal, but for the purpose of this, you're maybe a different animal, maybe a frog. <laughs> and uh, let's say they are living in a forest and the world just feels like it's getting hotter and hotter. Have you got any ideas as to ways you could alter your behavior to stay cool? And now this could be on a broad scale or a small scale. Moving into shadier micro habitats, finding those <laughs> yes. little niches that are nice and cool, little bits of cool water, maybe a nice bromeliad to hide in during the hottest parts of the day, that sort of stuff. Nice. That would yeah, be that, my go-to. Great answer. What about, um, could you maybe change, let's say, you know, I mean, I, certainly when I visited very hot countries, went to India and it was like 47 degrees in Rajasthan in the desert, it was um, very hot completely intolerable and what i found myself doing was shifting to a more early morning late evening sort of mode of life. ah yes and it was like too hot in the middle of the day lunchtime forget about it just seeking shelter but i'd get up early go out do my bits and bobs and then try and be home for the heat of the day and animals can do that too and similarly on an even broader scale what we see is that often animals will just begin to shift their ranges so just move a, just leave yeah. the horrible areas and, and shift to somewhere with more yeah more palatable climate that's yeah, the so word. say yeah you're in a place that's getting hotter as a species they tend to i mean here in um in europe obviously the equator's below us so it's further south so what you tend to see is that animals which are experiencing climate change will shift their ranges northward to try and find cooler climbs the same thing works if you're the other side of the equator you could just go south it should be a little bit cooler alternatively going to higher altitude is quite a good one because it's a little bit cooler up the high altitude so these are some other strategies that as long as you're not already animals. at the top if you're already at the top that's <laughs> it, game over but yeah not only that so you can obviously change your behavior oh the other one the other big one is like coming out of hibernation earlier going into hibernation later if it's uh getting hotter because uh you know you feel that tug of the warm weather to get you out of hibernation earlier Yes, that almost sounds like a benefit, though, because hibernation is a response to, like, low productivity, cold times a lot of the time, isn't it? So if you don't need to hibernate, potentially that's a good thing because you've got more active period all year round, so more resource gathering all year round. I guess, yes, it could be the case that that yeah. is true. It could also be the case that actually, like, hibernation is a period of torpor which has, like, developmental benefits and, like, if you... Yeah, so you might miss out on that. Mm -hmm. yeah if you abbreviate it it can be good it can be bad i think it's a bit of a mixed bag what we know about reduced yes. hibernation times because i think there's some experiments going on in Bangor and they're um manipulating the temperature regime of lizards while they're hibernating and seeing right. how it affects their like fitness when they come back out whether or not they're still fat and happy and all that kind of stuff because obviously like if you're an animal which is kept warmer particularly for ectotherms like reptiles you're yeah metabolism is quite closely tied to your temperature yes. so if you're kept warmer over the winter then it might be the case that your processes are still ongoing but you're not eating so right so you're basically losing out because you don't have the opportunity to re-up that even though your metabolism's running hotter than it should be yeah 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 yeah, yeah. but i think yeah i seem to recall we did a paper on 
toads about this and actually toads were loving it if they were healthier if they were hibernated warmer i think so it's a bit of a mixed bag well that's it it's gonna be a species response it's gonna be a location response it all gets obviously there's always going to be more detail you can dig into but the point is as things get warmer animals have to change their behavior hibernation being one of them whether that helps or hinders well depends exactly but there's some other not only they change their behavior they can also change their physical appearance so obviously this is like a generational thing but certainly uh birds in america were found to be getting smaller because uh, as summer temperatures increase uh north american migratory birds are getting smaller because the smaller an animal is the higher surface area to volume ratio so if you're smaller you lose heat more quickly and cool down faster so yeah there's been this trend in north american migratory birds who are experiencing hotter temperatures to shrink basically and they've also got larger wings because i think if you're slightly smaller it makes flying more energetically costly for some reason so they've compensated for that by growing larger wings that sounds like a very complicated aerodynamic yeah equation question right there doesn't it i was in two minds (laughs) as to whether or not to even bring up the wings but uh yeah the wings is a bit of a confusing one but their bodies are getting smaller and in ectothermic animals and we've just said that like metabolic rate is sensitive to temperature warmer temperatures can lead to faster growth rates but then they also can lead to ultimately a smaller body size so you have this like fast growth but then they don't grow as big and this has been observed in american lobsters and also atlantic cod when Hmm. the water has warmed in the northwest atlantic they grow faster but they don't reach the same adult sizes as they did previously and they think that's partially attributable to climate change getting hotter so equatorial areas under climate change are going to get hotter and there was this big big study on amazonian frogs and how much heat they can actually tolerate so they basically took a bunch of species of amazonian frogs and looked at like what their sort of like thermal maximums were and what they could tolerate and what they found it wasn't actually that bad they actually only found that it was like four percent of lowland rainforest frogs in the amazon will experience temperatures exceeding their thermal max so that's like one in 20 frog species is probably going to get cooked to death (laughs) You said, which is oh, bad like, that's an, oh thank goodness <laughs> yeah i know yeah i know, I know. Oh. but you know we're, we're at that phase of damage limitation now so. yeah yeah that's good news yeah yeah sure <laughs> no yeah I, I yeah it could be worse news no it absolutely could be it's not a criticism of the wording you were using it's a criticism of the state the world is in yeah but yeah 25 percent might be moderately affected and 70 percent are unlikely to experience prolonged heat stress so you know that's at least something good and that's under a hypothetical three degree temperature increase but what they did find was that the worst affected frogs were actually direct developing frogs in this family called strabomantidae they seem to be at highest risk of thermal stress and that might be due to their well they are just direct developing it would make sense because if you're more closely connected to water and as long as the water isn't disappearing, water acts as a very good buffer against heat increases and decreases, doesn't it? So maybe that's sort of helping them out if they're actually in a tadpole state in water, which gives them that buffer. But this paper we're talking about, they kind of wanted to hone it in, narrow it down and just talk about cocky frogs and work out how increased heating might influence perhaps their behavior or... Uh 
you know, their numbers. And so the way they did this was extremely cool. So there's this place in Puerto Rico called the Tropical Responses to Altered Climate Experiment, or TRACE for short. And this was established in September 2016 in the eastern part of Puerto Rico in the Luquillo Experimental Forest. So what they've got essentially is like all these plots. They've got a normal forest, just a forest. And then inside well, the forest, a, they have... It's a regrown forest from the 50s, isn't it? It's not necessarily like primary, primary forest. Secondary forest, regrowth, yep. nice. But um, inside this forest, they have all these plots. And what they are is they're not fenced in. They're just areas which basically have these scaffolding poles holding up these giant infrared heaters. And so there's these sort of like, uh, they're not circular. They're sort of like, I guess they're octagonal. But the uh, mm-hmm. these small patches of forest are basically blasted by these infrared heaters on scaffolding poles to sort of create a situation which is four degrees warmer than the surrounding areas and what they wanted to do was see whether or not there was a difference between the behavior of frogs in the heated areas compared to the non-heated areas and they did that using um, a spatial mark recapture study so they were like catching frogs and marking them and then letting them go again yeah yeah and from that you can sort of work out how far these frogs are going because it depends on where they're trapped if, you know you found an individual in one trap then you found it in another trap you know it must have gone that distance and by con- you, know, you get all that data on loads and loads of individuals you can get an idea of how how big of an area they're using you obviously get a decent idea of numbers um, and you also get an idea of like how easy it is to detect the same individual multiple times which is what makes this method like work and so fundamentally good because it detaches the sort of detectability probability and the probability of a frog actually being there. Yeah, precisely. And so what's cool about this is it really gives them an opportunity to compare the spatial ecology of populations of these koku frogs in warmed and controlled plots to get a bit of a snapshot of what they can expect to experience when the climate eventually warms. Well, it started, but it's going to continue. And I guess the main... The main thing that they found, so they didn't really find any differences in the numbers of the frogs, did they? The numbers of the frogs were not greater in areas which were artificially heated. It wasn't like suddenly there was this population explosion of frogs where it was nice and warm. But what they did find was that those frogs that were there were more easy to detect. So they were easier to spot if they were in the heated plots and they attribute that to increased activity by the frogs. So they're more likely to be active on the surface in the heated plots, which is kind of weird and was contrary to what they expected. They thought if it was too hot or if it was more hot, they'd be less active, you know, to try and avoid drying out. Right. Like what I sort of, yeah, sort of mentioned at the beginning. It's like, okay, you're going to find a nice, cool microhabitat to chill out in to avoid the heat, as opposed to running about being more detectable and more findable by these researchers. Yeah. And it kind of like led them to ask the question, why? Like, why are these frogs more easily detectable in these hot plots? And they wondered if they were kind of stuck in this nightmarish loop where frogs experience warmer temperatures and this increases their metabolic rate, as we said earlier, which then results in greater energetic demand. So you're hotter, your metabolic rate increases and you're hungrier because you need to you know, fulfill these increased energy demands. And so because you're hungrier, you're then hunting around more activity to try and acquire prey to meet those energetic demands. So you're stuck in this loop where it's like you're hotter, you need more food, and then you're running around on the surface hotter, 
need more food. And so they they do say, you know, they stop short of basically saying that this is absolutely the case, but they do think that this is a feedback loop which could result in more stress for the frogs, potentially lower immune function. And obviously, if they're running around on the surface more, they could be at risk of predation. And potentially putting more demand on their prey species too, if they just need more of them. You know, they're not a a species in isolation here. They have an effect on their prey species. An important point is it's not movement over a greater space either. It's movement over the same amount of space. They didn't seem to find any differences in the space use of the frogs in the heated versus non-heated areas. So it's like hamster on wheel sort of situation where they're just running about their own their own spot, their own turf, as opposed to mm. expanding out. Well, they did say about this particular frog that a lot of the time they're sort of ambush predators yeah. or maybe just like sit and wait. So I get the impression that they just kind of like sit on sort of like low branches and wait for bugs to come past. But of course, that would explain the increased detectability, right? If they're hungrier right. for having higher metabolic rate, they yep. might not move further, but they would be exposed looking for prey more often. Yeah, spending more time foraging rather than other stuff frogs get on with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But they do mention that that would be a cool next step for this study is to actually stick some little transmitters on these frogs and compare the kind of behavior and energy budgets of them more closely. Because although they may not be using more space, it could be that they are like moving around more within the space right. that they are using. Which Getting impatient with their sit and wait locations and moving on to somewhere else. And they're sort of a lot more twitchier and a lot more, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah less patient. I can't wait anymore. I'm starving. Like that also, I'm, I'm getting cooked and I'm irritated. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I tried to think, little poor little frogs. But yeah, I love the trace experiment. I think the trace experiment is fantastic. It's I'm phenomenally really impressed with it. Different, isn't it? I've never like the the audacity and the ambition to think, okay, we're going to heat a portion of the forest to experimentally investigate how climate change will affect these forests. Like that's remarkable. It's such an undertaking. Yeah, and they recovered from two hurricanes. In 2017, hurricanes, firstly Irma, which I think was bad, but then Maria came along and just literally shattered everything. So they've rebuilt everything. And this the data for this study has been collected since they rebuilt in 2018. So yeah, really, really awesome, really impressive thing. I would love to see some more studies coming out of this that we could talk about. Yeah, we'll keep eyes peeled for it, I think, because it's such a clean experimental design here with the whole control and and experimental plots being in the same you know similar locations and yeah yeah very targeted very good yeah it's really nice and i think this is just a cool paper where they've actually managed to experimentally manipulate a climate change situation to get a glimpse in the wild hot future yeah in In the the wild wild. (laughs) which is crazy yeah so uh, yeah, I think that just about draws to a close our episode on the effects of climate change on these little cockery frogs from Puerto Rico. Super, super cool. Eulithrodactylus coqui. And yeah, Ben, have you got any other business? I don't, no. No, I'm, I'm still just thinking about the these frogs and the noise they make. It's phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, so I've got one other thing. We'd be remiss not to mention this. Big news in the world of snakes over the last sort of couple of weeks, and that is that snakes have a clitoris, which wasn't known before about snakes. It turns out they have a forked hemiclitoris, much like the forked hemipene in males. And um, yeah, as it turns out, did a bit of reading about clitori for this, and it turns out, with the exception of birds, clitorises are found in every vertebrate lineage, including snakes' closest cousins, lizards. 
But uh, yeah, nobody had bothered to look. So as it turns out, there's this PhD candidate at the University of Adelaide called Megan Falwell, and she decided to do some research. Well, she was trying to basically dig up information on the snake clitoris and realised that there was none. And so this basically led her to do a study on the anatomy of female snakes. And she looked at nine species from four families. So we're talking Elapidae, Pythonidae, Colubridae and Vapiridae. And yeah, female snakes have this hemiclitors. The basically the finding of this is that there's going to be some sensation for the female snake during courtship and copulation. And obviously, like clitoris has a role in like pleasure. So there's not like conclusive evidence at the moment. They, I think they need to do more experiments. But it's likely that there's like tactile sensitivity in this organ, and it could be a role. It could indicate that there's a role for pleasure in mating habits of snakes particularly females which when you think about it kind of makes sense like there's i mean all other animals have it why wouldn't snakes have it yeah so that's the kicker isn't it is it's like yeah okay this all tallies up presumably the assumptions that are made with other animals now apply to snakes just verifiably yeah and there's also like all these things like you know for example male boas have like little spurs for tickling and stuff like all of these like pre-copulatory behaviors that you see snakes engage in like Mm -hmm. it just makes so much sense that there would be a role for pleasure in females in all of this and obviously like a lot of the coverage around this has been like ha 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 herpetology is a male dominated field and it took ages to find the clitoris but actually it does mirror this kind of lack of attention towards sexual anatomy of female animals in general mm-hmm. even extending to humans which is obviously something which really needs sorting out and um yeah it, you know it, it is indicative of a lack of attention as to why this wasn't discovered sooner but now it has been and it's fascinating and it will open up a whole new little avenue of research in snakes which can only be a good thing it's exciting yeah i think that's the winner isn't it is that it's that it's gonna additionally with the sort of press it's got hopefully shape things up in a sort of questioning your previous assumptions kind of way i know i always bring it up because it's perhaps one of my favorite papers we've ever covered on the podcast but that anolis territoriality one where it had aspects of female mate choice in and how it was just like wow look at all this literature that assumed territoriality and assumed male mate choice was this dominant thing to research not even that it was a dominant thing driving anything it was just the dominant thing researched and therefore you missed this like wealth of information of what was going on in this system simply because people weren't looking close enough. And I'm hoping that this sort of will do the same again, but with snakes and just sort of generate way more questions and way more questions that don't have as many sort of assumptions connected to them, like that are actually yeah have as much momentum if you see what i mean like a sort yeah, of... yeah yeah there's not so much like presumption about yeah how the mating situations of animals operate right like, yeah it's not just like oh the males are so bullshit <laughs> right right but it, i don't know yeah it feels like it's only only going to make more questions and more insightful answers at the end of the day which is but yeah wicked. it's actually amazing how the reach of this like so many people have said to me oh yeah have you heard about this like I guess a paper to do with a sex and like the pleasure and potentially uh, well, it pleasure sells, in sex. It? Is, yeah, yeah. They do say something like that, don't they? Isn't there like a sex? Sex sells. <laughs> that's what that's what yeah. the saying is, isn't it? <laughs> taking that for advertising. Yeah, I was extracting the Michael. All right. Well, let's uh, let's <laughs> leave it there.
I think if anyone wants to get in touch with us, they can at herphighlights at gmail.com. Similarly, we are on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those. So if you want to get in touch with us there, you can. And yeah, I think that all that remains to be said is thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs>